Good morning. My name's Matt. Um, if I don't know you, um, I'd like to get to know you, so come introduce yourself. Uh, you know, we, we look for a lot of things in life to find joy. We reach out to a lot of things to find joy. And I wanted to share three of those things throughout my life. Um, the first one uh, is being a, being a good kid, being a good boy, um, having good moral, religious effort going on, looking squeaky clean on the outside. I've definitely reached out to that at times in my life, more than I care to admit even, to find joy and satisfaction. Another thing is pornography. The stint in college where I was reaching out to that for joy and satisfaction and delight. Third thing is food. A lot of you won't be surprised by that because a lot of my illustrations include food. But I've definitely reached out to different restaurants, meals, even amounts of food for joy and satisfaction. Here's what's true about all of those things and, and everything that I have tried to reach out to in this life for joy. They've all over-promised and under-delivered. They all ended up over-promising and under-delivering, and they all ended up being trash compared to the one true treasure, Jesus Christ himself. So if you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, we're working our way through Philippians, and we're going to look at Philippians 3, 1 through 11. And here's the point. Here's the big idea of Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Joy is found in what you trash and in what you treasure. Joy is found in what you trash and what you treasure. And there's two things in here that Paul says, hey, you just need to throw them away. You just need to trash them. And four things that you need to start treasuring. So let's check it out. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He sets the stage in verse 1. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He's saying, hey, choose joy in God. 
Choose joy in God. He's essentially saying, hey, everything that I'm about to tell you in these coming verses will help you choose joy in the Lord. So start there. Rejoice in the Lord. And I'm going to tell you how to do it. And he says, hey, I can repeat that over and over if you want. And he does. If you look at Philippians, we didn't entitle this choose joy for no reason. I mean, over and over in the book of Philippians, in different ways, he essentially says, hey, rejoice in the Lord. Find joy in God alone. He says, listen up. I can't say this enough. And in fact, these verses are known by a lot of people as the essence of Paul's theology, the essence of Paul's teaching. If you look throughout the Bible at um, the scripture that, that the Holy Spirit wrote through Paul, you just see that these verses encapsulate his main messages. But he's saying, listen up. It's like, it's like a mom with, with their kids who are coming up to the street. What do they say when they're on a sidewalk and they're about to cross the street? Hey, look both ways before you cross the street. Hey, Look both ways before you cross the street. If the child comes anywhere, hey, look both ways before you cross the street. You know what I'm saying? Just no matter what. And so Paul's kind of the same way throughout Philippians. Hey, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Hey, rejoice in the Lord. In case you forgot, find joy in God. And he just, it's, it's, it's like he's on autopilot just over and over because it's so important. Because he knows how prone to wander we are. Find joy in Jesus, not in the trash of everything else. So, verses 2 through 8, he essentially asks this big question. Are you treasuring trash? Are you treasuring trash? And so I couldn't help but think of Toy Story 4. Because, of course, when you read Philippians 3, that's what you think of, right? Here's where I'm going with this. How many of you have seen Toy Story 4? Okay, about half of you. All right, all right. Um, If you haven't seen any of the Toy Stories... I'm sorry, I, this isn't going to make sense to you, so i just throwing that out. Um, but Toy Story 4, I went, I went into it rather pessimistic, like, okay, you ended. Toy Story 3 almost had me crying, like, it was just a beautiful ending, and now you're having a fourth one? What are you doing, Disney? But Disney knew what they were doing, and in my opinion, it's the best one, Toy Story 4. If you haven't seen it, don't take my word for it, judge yourself. Toy Story 4. Here's why I thought of it. Um, there's this new character called Forky. Okay? And, uh, yeah, yeah, some, some love for Forky. Love it. Um, rightfully so. So, uh, Bonnie, which is Woody, the cowboy, the cowboy doll's new owner. Bonnie goes to preschool, and on her first day, she's having a hard time. So, Woody wants to cheer her up. So, he does what anyone would and digs in the trash and finds a spork and some other things, and, and you got, there he is, good, um, and makes Sporky for Bonnie and cheers her up on that first day of preschool, and then she's attached to it, sleeps with it, you know, like kids do with, with little toys and, and such, so, but the, what's great about it is for like half of the movie, uh, Woody tries to convince Forky that he's not trash, okay, that he, I mean, he was trash, but now you are a toy, you are not trash. And, and Forky over and over just wants to keep throwing himself, literally throwing himself into the wastebasket. And he goes, trash! Yay! You know, you, you'd have to see that. You'd have to be there. But, um, but I thought of it because of this. It's, it's us so often. It's me so often. Just cuddling up next to things that are just trash. Just finding enjoyment and life, or trying to anyways, out of things that are just foolish. And so Paul's saying here, hey, 
There are two things that you need to not just throw in the trash, but then treat as trash. And the first one is effort. Effort. He starts in verse 2, look out for the dogs. Now this isn't D-A-W-G-S, okay? This isn't a good term, all right? It's more like watch out for the wolves, okay? This was a common this was a common diss to the Gentiles or the, or the non-Jews. And ironically, he's calling some people, this people group that were Jews and converted to Christianity, he's calling them this term. And the, these, this group of people is called the Judaizers. And they are Christians who said that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Yeah, believe in Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised and obey the Old Testament law to a T. Jesus plus, Jesus plus. And it, it, it outrages Paul. He's like, no, Jesus didn't die so that you could earn your way. Jesus died to earn your way. And so he, he's upset. He, he, he calls them this, this name. And then he says, watch out for the evildoers. If that's not enough. Casey, are you starting to see how trashy our own efforts actually are? And then he contrasts at the end of verse 2. He says, hey, there are those, these Judaizers who mutilate the flesh. He doesn't even use the term. He could have used the proper term, which would have been Judaizers or the circumcision. But no, he just says, those who just cut the flesh. Okay, that's how outrageous it is to Paul. And he, he... Contrast that in verse 3 with true Christians. Or put another way, he, he contrasts those who are thinking you need to be circumcised physically with those who have a true heart spiritual circumcision. He's contrasting outward effort. Hanging your hat on outward effort versus hanging your hat on Christ's effort. And he drives it home in verse 3. Put no confidence in the flesh. Don't trust don't hope and don't find joy in any effort of your own. I mean, so much so that, that effort and good works are like filthy rags, he goes on to say in verse 8. They're like trash, rubbish. But he takes it to a whole other level. If this wasn't enough, calling them this name, okay, and, and, and not even addressing them properly, he then uses his own experience. He's like, this was me. I can relate to Paul in some ways and in, in this desire to just look squeaky clean on the outside. And this, he's saying, hey, this was me. Take it from, from me. And he lists them. He's like, here's my efforts that outward me, outwardly made me look all together in verses 5 and 6. And the first four were actually just privileges Paul had from birth. This was his status that he could have boasted in. And he's like, nope. All this stuff is trash. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Literally, if you look up in Leviticus 12, verse 3, that's the law. That's what must be done. And that's what happened to Paul. It says of the people of Israel. This means he was a full-blooded Israelite. He was a full-blooded Jew from birth. If you converted to Judaism, you were kind of second rate. But he didn't convert. He was from birth. He says, he, I was of, of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, this was the best of the best. If you think of like the United States, you got Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, you have all of these territories. That's what we're talking about. Israel had tribes, different territories going on. And the tribe of Benjamin was the best of the best because it contained Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the capital, which also contained the temple, the meeting place with God. It also was the birthplace of the first king of Israel. 
So he's like, I'm not, I'm not just an Israelite. I'm the best of the best when it comes to the Israelites. And he says, I'm, I was, I'm also a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's referring to the fact that he was taught the language of Hebrew and the language of Aramaic, which is the languages that the Old Testament law were written in. But then he mentions the, the last three things are Paul's actual efforts. He, were, he wasn't just born into these. He says, as to the law of Pharisee. Pharisees were a, a Jewish sect that were most strict and faithful to the Old Testament law. He's like, hey, when it came to the law, we had it down. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He's saying, hey, I had so much passion for God that I even persecuted Christians because of it. He's like, and you might be like, whoa, that's a bit, why was he doing that? He was doing that because he was convinced at that point in his life, before he came to know Christ, that Jesus was just a dead guy. So he's not going to put up with that. He's going to stand up for what is true and what is right. He had passion. And he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This means outwardly squeaky clean, above reproach, couldn't find anything against him. So let's turn this on us for a second. What trash of effort are you treasuring? What trash of effort are you clinging on to as your security blanket? Maybe you were born and raised with Christian parents. Maybe you've been attending a church for years. And you hang your head on that. Maybe you read your Bible every day and when you miss a day, you make up for it the next day. And you hang your head on that. Maybe you pray at meals and sometimes you even pray at other times during the day. And you hang your head on that. Maybe you give money regularly to the church or to the poor. Maybe you serve within the church and children's ministry, worship, youth, whatever. Maybe you're really kind to your neighbors. You even... Shovel their sidewalk from time to time. Now here's the thing. Don't get me wrong. Those are not bad things. In fact, they all could be incredibly good things if done with the right attitude. But here's what's true about all those things and all of our efforts. They're terrible saviors. They're absolutely terrible saviors. And they're a means to an end, not an end in of themselves. If you do not do those things, read your Bible, show up at church, pray, all of these, these, these good, if you don't do these things to know and to elevate and to treasure Jesus Christ, who cares that you're doing them? Who cares that you're here this morning if you're not doing it to elevate Jesus? A few years ago, about two years into being a youth pastor, and I I say this kind of ashamedly. I had what I'd call a grace awakening. Okay, my very job was to teach people the good news of Jesus. And I knew it. I knew that I was saved by grace through faith and it wasn't my works. I knew that in my head. But the way I was living said very differently. The way I was living, I was living like I could earn it. And I absolutely cannot earn it. And so maybe this morning, God wants to do a grace awakening in your life. Maybe you are born again, but you need to be born again into what is 
actually the gospel. I was sitting that year, I was, I, that, the moment I was talking about this grace awakening, I was sitting in my car. I just got done playing disc golf with someone. I was sitting in my car reading a short book like this because I like short books because I can actually read through them um, quickly and they get right to the point, right? So reading this book called The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney, and he makes this analogy. He, he talks about this, this fictional guy named Stuart who comes to know Jesus. And Stuart is told, hey, you need to read your Bible, you need to pray, you need to go to church, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to love your neighbor, all this stuff, all this good stuff. And this, yeah, that some of those things should be the fruit of following Jesus. And so he does those things, and he shows up at church the next Sunday, and he is feeling great about himself. He's like, man, you know, God is fortunate to have me worshiping him here today. You know, like that sort of attitude walking in. But then the next week falls off the wagon a little bit. A little less disciplined, a little less obedient, shows up and just feels terrible about himself. Just feels like, wow. I mean, is God even love me, may not have even said that or, or thought that in those terms, but, but showing up just like, ah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know about this Jesus thing. And he says in this book, can you relate to Stuart's mistake? Do you often find that you're more aware of your sin than of what Jesus accomplished at the cross? When you picture God's attitude toward you, do you think of God as disappointed with you? Rather than delighting over you. It hit me between the eyes. And if it hasn't. I pray that it hits you between the eyes. Right now. Today. In this moment. That even though we are so unworthy. And so undeserving. Jesus came and died for our sins. So that we can walk in here and walk into any place with our heads held high. Why? Not because of anything I've ever done. In fact, often in spite of the things that I've done or that I just thought about or that I just, that I just said to that person. In spite of those things, God still calls me His son and loves me the same as He loved me yesterday, as He'll love me tomorrow, as He'll love me five years from now and for eternity. I mean, that is mind-blowing. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is why it's so good that because apart from anything I've ever done. Jesus just loves me and accepts me. What is that? Think about life, right? We walk through life, and what do I do? I go to work, and I I go to work, and I get paid. Cause, effect, cause, effect. Grace throws that out the window and goes, I don't even care if you did anything. In fact, I don't even care if you screwed it up. I love you, and you're forgiven. It's cause and effect, but it's only the the cause was Jesus. The effect is we get grace and our effort is trash. Are you treasuring the trash of effort? Second thing we need to trash, he turns in verse 8 and he says everything. You need to trash your effort and then you just need to trash everything. That escalated quickly. Uh, Verse 8, I count everything as loss. Go forward a little bit. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Everything I count as loss. From religious efforts 
to anything and everything. Every single thing is like trash. It's worthless, he's saying to me in comparison to knowing Christ. Every privilege Paul had as a Jew, every privilege he now has as a Christian, is, he's saying it's just trash in value compared to knowing Jesus. Every earthly pleasure you can experience, even the good ones, are bland and dissatisfying up and against the treasure of Jesus Christ. It says, I've suffered the loss of all things. I love this. It's so human. He points out how painful it is to value Jesus above everything else. It is, it is suffering a loss. For Paul, it literally eventually meant his life, and it meant physical pain, it meant jail, it meant persecution. And so for the Philippians and for us, it may not be physical, but it's probably more emotional. But it hurts. It hurts to give up a vacation. It hurts to give up a meal for someone else. It hurts to give up some of your reputation and what other people think of you for the sake of Jesus. It is a loss that you suffer. He says, I count it as rubbish. It's all rubbish. One theologian in, in talking about this term in the original Greek language said this. This refers to a half-eaten corpse. Filth. Like lumps of manure or human excrement. The portion of food rejected by the body as unnourishing or to the scraps or leavings of a feast. The food thrown away from the table. Paul is saying, I would rather cuddle up next to a half-eaten corpse than let anything else become more beautiful and precious to me than Jesus. And that is the call to me. That is the call to you if you are a follower of Jesus. That we would have this attitude and mindset that I would, I would rather cuddle up to a half-eaten corpse, corpse than let churchy status become more important to me than Jesus. That I'd rather cuddle up to a half-eaten corpse than let sexual pleasure become more precious to me than Christ. That I'd rather cuddle up to a half-eaten corpse than let food become more precious to me than Christ. That I'd rather cuddle up to a half-eaten corpse than let physical appearance become more important to me than the treasure of Jesus. And I'd rather, I'd rather cuddle up to a half-eaten corpse than let even close friendship become more dear to me than Jesus Christ, my Lord. And that sounds so grotesque. But that's how radical it is. It's rubbish. Are you treasuring the trash of everything? I think of the book of Ecclesiastes. One of our elders brought this up. I love it. Think of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. And King Solomon, who saw everything, experienced just about everything you could on this earth, concluded this, that everything is vanity. Everything is worthless. Everything is trash. Wisdom, self-indulgence, work, you name it. And that's really depressing. Because in Ecclesiastes, he really gives no solution. Because he didn't have one. But Paul gives the solution because he had it and we have it now. There is one thing that is not worthless trash, and that is Jesus. So he shifts a bit in verse 8 and asks this question. Are you trashing treasure? Are you trashing treasure? So I immediately thought of some movies where 
like this one where they got money and they're just like using it to wipe their nose and um, just treating it terribly like that. But Paul's saying, hey, is that what you're doing with the treasure of Christ? And that's where he starts. So four things that we need to treasure. In, and the first one is the most important one, and that's Christ. Verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Surpassing worth, he says. Christ is worth more to me than anything. I remember one time in a connection group, we were sitting around and we had kind of an opener, opening question to talk about. We were like, what's that one thing you spend money on, even if you don't really have money to spend on it? What's that one thing you kind of splurge on? It uh, doesn't really matter. And so we went around and, and surprise, surprise, mine was food. In fact, I think we have to answer for our spouses. I think Heather pointed that out, so that was fun. Um, but no, it, it absolutely is true, and that's what I do. But what is that for you? What, what's that thing you just splurge on? Or what's that thing that you just drop anything to go do? If this is happening, I'm in on it. That's something that has surpassing worth to you. It has more worth to you than, than the other things. And that's what Paul's saying. Hey, Christ is worth more to me than anything else. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It almost seems like a disservice to, to spend so little time on this phrase. But, but we will attempt knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is beyond human intellect. Yes, you know about him, but it's, it's more. It's personal. It's intimate. It's friendship. Christ Jesus, my Lord. He is my king. This is, this is personal. He is my loving, benevolent authority. Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'm welcomed into the friendship of friendships, into the relationship of relationships. I, I, I now have a father that I always craved and longed for. I have the leader that I've always needed. I mean, this isn't even fully describable. This phrase, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's not describable because it's the treasure of treasures. Makes me think of the Puritans who were early Christians in our country. And instead of going around and asking, hey, have you read your Bible lately? Or, hey, have you prayed lately? Have you been going to church? They would ask a question like this to one another. Has your heart been strangely warmed by Christ lately? Has your heart been strangely warmed by Christ? Strangely, because it's unlike anyone or anything on this earth. It's that type of relationship. It's strange, but it's so warm because it's relationship. It's not a checklist. It's real relationship. Has your heart been strangely warmed by Christ? Do you know Christ Jesus, my Lord? Do you actively know Christ Jesus, your Lord? Are you trashing the treasure of Christ? And so I said there's four things we need to start treasuring. The next three, though, are just kind of like jewels on a ring. The ring being Christ. Or if you're into this, it's like the infinity stones on the gauntlet. But I want you to, I want you to 
catch this. We got verses 9, 10, and 11. This is a really cool place in Scripture where we see three theological terms just spelled out verse after verse. So I don't want you to miss it. It's really, and it's actually really important to know and understand theology because theology, the study of God, helps us see God more correctly and in turn then lets us see him as more worthy and beautiful and worth treasuring. So we see in verse 9, it's justification. It says, Be found in Christ, in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Righteousness, justification. It's your legal standing before God. If you've trusted in Christ, you get Christ's perfect record. You get His payment that is credited to your account. His his record imputed to you, given to you, totally outside of yourself. And so justification, justified. It's, It's like this, just as if I'd never sinned. You're standing before God, flawless. So we need to trash our own efforts, our own righteousness, our own justification. You were guilty before you started. Before you even committed a sin, you were sinful by nature because of Adam's sin. And so there's no way to make yourself justified before a holy God. You are guilty. But we have this treasure that we can stand before Christ and, and we can stand before a perfect holy God and He can look at us and say, you are perfect, you are flawless because He sees us through the lens of Christ's sacrifice. We get His record. Justification. Just as if I'd never sinned. You don't have to wonder about God's love for you today because you're standing before Him. It's not based off of you. It's based off of Him. Justification. Are you treasuring that? Second gem here in the ring is sanctification. Verse 10, sanctification, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It's treasuring the process of getting to know him. That's what sanctification is. It's the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. It's, it's a gift. It should be a treasured adventure to us. Why? Because we're never alone. We know we're not alone because it says we have the power of his resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead and now through the Holy Spirit, we have resurrection power. We have the power of the the same power that rose Jesus from the dead living inside of us. It should be a treasure to us, but everyone loves the power. Everyone wants the power. But no one wants the suffering, but there's a call to that here as well. That I may share his sufferings, becoming like in in his death. Or as some translations say, the fellowship of his sufferings. We don't want this. But it says we need to become like him in his death. Jesus knows. He did it himself. That was the path of Christ. It was a path of suffering when he was here on earth. And we can treasure this by looking backwards and looking forwards. We can treasure even suffering we're walking through now. Even the hardest of suffering because of justification. 
looking backwards. No one can take away my status before God. Nothing, no one, no human power, no, no power of the devil, no power, nothing, no circumstance can take that away. And we can walk through those hard times by looking forward, looking forward to the next one, verse 11, glorification. Glorification is our hope that we get a brand new body and are with Jesus for all of eternity. That's our hope. That's, that's glorification. But before we move on to glorification, I was thinking of um, Max Licato. And he has some books out that feature these characters called the Wemmicks. And uh, in, this, in these books, there's this carpenter, this woodworker, Eli, who makes these, these wooden figures and then they magically come to life and walk around and interact and whatever. But Eli represents God in this analogy, um, picks them up and sometimes has to, has to sand them a little bit and shave off the rough edges. And it's painful. It's like suffering is for us. But sometimes it's smooth and he picks them up and he just adds a little paint here and there. But either way, it's done by a creator who is good and knows what he's doing. That's how we can treasure sanctification, even when it's really difficult. That process of becoming more like Jesus is good. And so the last thing, glorification, verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's not hardwired into us to treasure this. Because we're so, we're so easily just focused on what's right here before us. Here, the things here on this earth. So it's hard to even focus on or think about it. But we have, think of it like this. We have future certainty that should shape our present reality. The future certainty of glorification should shape our present reality. So on your best days, on the most exciting time of your life, whatever that is, think about the best time in your life, on the best day you have this next week. Kids, Christmas. The best day you have. You should get excited. Because when you are glorified, when you are given a new body in heaven, it's going to be better than that moment. Better than that day. And on your worst day, you can look forward and go, you know what, this is terrible, but I have hope. Because one day I'm going to be free from all of this. There will be no more tears. No more pain. Real, living hope in the person of Jesus. So how do we do this? How do we treasure Christ and trash everything else? Because here's what's going to happen. All of us inevitably this week are going to hang, start to hang on to our efforts and are going to start to treasure things that really don't matter. So when we inevitably do that this week and fall short of this incredibly high bar, the solution is to rest. Rest. Rest in the treasure of Jesus. Rest in the joy and the good news of Jesus' justifying, sanctifying, and glorifying work for you. Not your effort, His effort. And this should free you to treasure Him like you never have before in your entire life. Let's pray. God, I pray that today would be the day where some people in here have a grace awakening. 
that they would not just know in their heads, but believe down to their core that they are saved not by their works, but by your grace. It's undeserved, but it is a gift nonetheless. So give them the heart, the posture to receive that grace and walk in it. And I pray that as we marvel in your grace and your goodness, Jesus, that it would propel us to treasure you like never before. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.